On the next episode of Probably True Solar Stories, we continue with part seven of The Solar Heist, when an intruder breaks in and holds a gun to the head of Maz's wife. Maz, Charlie, and Beth come to the rescue, but doing so risks blowing Charlie's cover and the entire DOE intelligence operation. Welcome back to Season 3 of Probably True Solar Stories. Have you missed the Lala music? I did too. If you're new to Probably True Solar Stories, my name is Tor Solarfred Valenza. I'm a 13-year solar PR pro, but before my solar career, I used to write for film and TV. Now I'm combining both of my passions into a fictional solar stories podcast. Why solar fiction? Well, math. That is, there are over 4 million solar installations in the U.S. alone today. And let's see, divided by zero solar-themed TV shows or films, which equals zero attention for solar homeowners, zero attention for solar workers, and the technologies that are replacing fossil fuels every damn day. So since solar energy is taking over the world, I figured it should be in our pop culture world as well. So if you've missed seasons one and two, lucky, lucky you. You can binge all of those original stories on your favorite podcast streaming service. They're not only entertaining, but each episode's show notes also includes our true solar takeaways. These separate each story's solar facts from the solar fiction. All right, enough about the past. Today is the beginning of the end of our solar noir series, The Solar Heist, or How I Got Into the Solar Business. That's right. At least for now, the next several episodes will wrap up all the loose ends with lots of blood, intrigue, and naughty language. So far, we've published six parts of the solar heist, and each part has had a fair number of solar plot twists and turns. So if you're a first-time listener, listen to Season 2, Episode 17, where I've compiled all the previous six parts into one single two-hour episode. Then come back and listen to this episode. Even if you're caught up, it's been a few months, so you might want to re-listen to part six just to get you up to speed. But perhaps this brief catch-up will remind you as well. When we last left Moz and Charlie, Moz's old crime syndicate colleague, George Oneway, had a gun tightly pressed to the head of Pauline, Moz's wife. George was demanding that Moz call Richard Prout, the head of a solar crime syndicate, and to give Richard the message that George is not an FBI informant. Maz agrees to make the call, but when Richard's cell phone rings in Maz's jacket pocket, George realizes that Richard is dead and tightens his grip on the gun to Pauline's head. Will Maz and Pauline survive? Let's find out. The Solar Heist, or How I Got Into the Solar Business, Part 7, Monsters, written and read by Tor Solarfred Valenza. When I saw George Oneway holding his forty-five to Pauline's head, I looked at her face, and I knew that everything was going to be okay. Her look reminded me of the time Pauline and I went to a ritzy Oakland jazz club in Jack London Square to see this young soul rock blues singer, Rhonda Yazoo. 
Rhonda had been on one of those TV singing contest shows. Her style was like if Aretha Franklin had a threesome baby with Joe Crocker and Joni Mitchell. Hard to describe. Maybe that's why she didn't win the TV contest. I'd never heard her before, but Pauline was a fan, so I bought tickets to the show. I liked the music, but Pauline, she loved the music. She stood up and she was lifting her arms, swaying and shaking to the music, like she was in a Soul Sister Blues Tina Turner trance. The people around our table started gawking, but Pauline didn't care. She was just enjoying her music, and no side looks, whispers, or judgment was going to make her stop her funky dance. That focus? That's how I saw Pauline when George Oneway had his forty-five magnum stuck to her head. She had her eyes on me, but she was in her zone, waiting. Me? I was thinking too much. There was at least four automatics and one submachine gun hidden in various coffee tables, side tables, and an ottoman storage compartment. I was thinking about how I was going to get to one of them and kill George. At the same time, I saw confusion on George's face. Usually confusion is dangerous, but in this situation, confusion was good. Because for that one brief moment, when George one way realized that I was carrying Richard's phone, Pauline got into a Rhonda dance trance. The music in Pauline's head wasn't Rhonda's, though. It was survival music. It was punk rock, Sid Vicious, ACDC, Beastie Boys, I'm gonna fuck up George Oneway music. So while I had that what-have-I-done look on my face, Pauline looked down at George's hand holding the forty-five. With her new Sid Vicious soundtrack, George's hand was like a big juicy spare rib. She bit into it so hard, so fast, and so deep, George had to let go of the gun. Now it dropped to the floor, and naturally, despite the pain, George wanted to pick it up again. But Pauline was still hungry. When George reached down to grab the forty-five, his tricep crossed Pauline's face, and she bit into that muscle. George yanked his arm out of her teeth and kept stretching down for the gun. But as soon as his hand got leveled to the floor, Pauline jumped and stomped all 115 pounds of her beautiful self onto George's bitten, outstretched hand. I heard it break, and George felt it break. He yawled like an angry alley cat. George's yawl snapped me out of my confusion. I stepped forward toward the ottoman in front of the couch. But before I could get to the submachine gun inside, Charlie and Beth came crashing through the front door. Now there's more confusion. Beth and Pauline being neighbors for the past two years, they're like best friends now. And when Beth sees the wolf lady in Pauline's eyes, it's contagious. Beth becomes Sid Vicious too, and poor George, he sees more pain coming. His forty-five is maybe two inches away from his good hand, but he knows he's fresh werewolf meat and that he's crossing the moors on a full moon with me Pauline and Beth right in front of him. Charlie's there too, but he's not a werewolf. Charlie's called Count Dracula, but that's still a midnight monster, so not good for George. With all of us midnight monsters in front of him, George gets a fight-or-flight adrenaline rush and jackrabbits trying to bulldoze his 160 pounds past me. Now, I don't have a gun, but my 200 pounds moves fast enough to shoulder George hard to my right. He's like a pinball, 
and George bounces to the Beth bumper. She's waiting for him with some kind of CIA, DOE, judo, taekwondo, choppy chop that inflicts even more pain into George's arm with his bitten, bleeding, broken hand. Still, that doesn't stop George. He bounces past Beth and heads towards cool Count Dracula Charlie standing in front of the door. Don't forget that Charlie's already had Richard Prout blow his brains out in front of him a few hours ago. And yet, he's got that cool, we're done here stare as George careens toward him. I know Charlie's got at least one, maybe two glocks behind his back, and all of us werewolves are just waiting for that explosion of blood and brains so that we can feast on George and feel victory and vengeance for George invading our home and putting a gun to Pauline's head. But we didn't get the blood and brains. Instead, Charlie pulled out a taser and zapped George in the chest. He falls hard to our wood floors, and that satisfies some of us werewolves, but not my Pauline. She's still hearing her Sid Vicious soundtrack. Kill him, Charlie! Kill him! she said. Now don't forget that I'm not the only one who lives in our house. Pauline knows where all the guns are hidden, too. George's forty-five is by her feet in front of her, but maybe because of habit, or maybe because she likes playing with submachine guns, Pauline grabs the top of the ottoman, about the size of a pit bull, mind you, and she throws off the cover and picks up the sub hidden inside. Now it's tense. At this point, Pauline doesn't know that Charlie is from his secret intelligence unit, and she also doesn't know that Beth is part of that same unit. So it was confusing to Pauline when Beth and Charlie stand in front of George one way, protecting George from Pauline punch-carding George's chest with a spray of automatic gunfire. Maybe Pauline wouldn't have shot Beth, but I think she would have shot Charlie if I hadn't been the next person to step in front of her. I looked straight into her wolfwoman eyes, and I said, Pauline, don't, baby. Charlie and Beth are Fred's, but they're on our side. We're on their side. Drop the gun, hon. It's gonna be okay. Hearing me say that so calmly, so sweetly, the full moon passed, the dawn broke, and Pauline let the submachine gun fall to her side. She wasn't just crying for the stress of the George invasion being over. She was crying because, like me, she thought she'd been betrayed by her best friend and neighbor. And worse, I was in on it too. It's okay, I said and I hugged her as she cried. I just found out too, but it's gonna be okay. Did it turn out to be okay in the long run? I don't know, but I keep getting ahead of myself. George one way being alive was a problem. He knew that Richard Prout was dead, and he now knew that Beth and Charlie were feds, but George knew a lot more than that. He was Richard Proud's messenger. If Charlie did arrest him and take him in, he might get a lot of information, or he might keep his mouth shut and accidentally die in lockup, just like the Italian mayor who accidentally took an electric hairdryer into his bathtub. Charlie and Beth tied George up and brought him down to my basement where I was still growing my magic mushrooms under grow lights. Maybe we should put George on a little trip, I said to Beth and Charlie. You wonder what he might say with a little psychedelic encouragement. Nothing reliable that I could use in court, said Beth. We looked at George, who smiled, 
Speaking of trips, I happen to have a boat in the Jack London Square docks, he said. If you let me go, you'll never see me again, and that could solve some problems for you. We're not letting you go, George, said Beth. It's just a matter of how to process you. Well, uh, I mean, sure, that's one option. Uh, another option could be you keep your cover and find out who's at the top of the solar crime syndicate, said George. Explain. Beth crossed her arms. Well, I, I, I don't know who the guy is. I mean, I swear to a lie detector about that. But I do know he made a lot of coded text to Washington, D.C. numbers for Richard. So I got a bad feeling that as soon as I'm booked into custody, not only am I going to be dead, but everyone in this room is going to have a very short shelf life. Keep going, said Charlie. Well, Richard killed himself, didn't he? Or he forced you to kill him? Something like that. Charlie kept silent. You don't have to tell me. I, I just know how it works. If anybody is ever arrested, then somehow the syndicate kills the snitch or his family to the youngest member, no matter how young. So I suspect Richard tried to kill himself to protect his wife and family. Am I right? What's your point? Charlie asked. Well, I don't have any family or even close cousins, and I'm already suspected of being a rat. So if you, Mr. and Mrs. Boston, were to report that selfish, greedy, no-family me killed Richard Prout for some Bitcoin and then disappeared, well, that would draw away any suspicions about Maz or Charlie being the rat and blowing your cover. It would just be a Bitcoin robbery. So blame Richard's death on me, George Larkin, a.k.a. George One Way, then transfer a million in Bitcoin to me through Richard's phone and let me go. Then there's no record of me being in custody, and then whoever Richard knows inside the government isn't tipped off that you're getting closer. As for the syndicate, they'll also blame me when they see my name and the Bitcoin robbery in the press. If the syndicate ever catches me, believe me, I won't live to talk. I'm going to die without any polite conversation. Charlie looked to Beth. Well, if what he says is true about someone in the government being part of the syndicate, he's right. They'll know we're getting close if we process him. We can't just let him go with a million in Bitcoin, Charlie said. If George were dead, couldn't we accomplish the same thing? I asked. No, said Beth. We are the government, Maz. We are not executioners. George raised his hand. That's not my experience? What are you saying, George? Beth asked. I'm saying what you already know, Mrs. Boston. Someone with a government ID doesn't uphold the Constitution. I, I don't know any names or titles, but his number's on Richard's phone. I'm pretty sure of that. Everyone looked at Charlie. They were leaving it up to him to let George go. Charlie took a moment. Then he said, George, you're about to be a million dollars richer, but Beth is going to keep your phone for our investigation. So whatever contacts you have, there are contacts now. As if I'm going to have any friends anymore after the news gets out, George said. Take it. Where I'm going, I'll make new friends with a million dollars. It seemed to be settled, but then my Pauline turned to me. He invaded our home, 
He pointed a gun to my head. You're just going to let him get away with that, husband? I cricked my head to the right, and then to the left, and then I looked at Charlie. Pauline's right. He's getting off too easy. You bit me and broke my hand, said George to Pauline. What would make you feel whole, Pauline? asked Charlie. Oh, I don't know. I should at least get to punch him out one more time. Me too, I chipped in. Charlie and Beth shrugged, then turned their backs. I could have shot them both right then, but I knew which side I was on now. Instead of a punch, Pauline kicked George one way in the balls. I gave him a punch that knocked out his two front teeth. And then Beth took George's phone. I made the Bitcoin transfers from Richard's phone, and we all brought George safe and sound to his 20-foot sailboat docked at Jack London Square. He sailed away at about 5 a.m. that morning. The first news report came out at around 10.30. Ex-employee robs and kills solar and landfill mogul. Suspect at large. Charlie and Beth heard nothing else from Washington, and they felt like they'd made the right call with George. Now all they had to do was go through the phones of Richard, George, and Richie three times, and to see what numbers they had in common. But before they could do that, the next problem showed up. A very drunk Mrs. Sylvia Prout. She wasn't just grieving about the death of her husband. She wanted answers from me and Charlie. But that was okay, because Charlie was looking for answers from her. Of course, you never know what comes out of a drunk person. Oh, poor George. Or maybe lucky George. Yeah, he lost his two front teeth. But at least he's getting away with his life and a million dollars. I think we all can turn into monsters when our loved ones are threatened by a bad person. But I hope we can become ourselves again after the danger has passed. As for the true solar takeaways in this episode, as you'll see in the show notes, there isn't much, except for that little hint from George about the Washington, D.C. connection. As Charlie said in our very first episode, energy, even renewable energy, is politics. Keep that in mind. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll continue with the second episode of Season 3 and Part 8 of The Solar Heist, a chapter I'm calling Mrs. Prout. I think you're going to like her. As always, please do take a moment to rate, review, and share Probably True Solar Stories with your friends, family, and pets. It really does help spread the word. The Solar Heist, or How I Got Into the Solar Business, Part 7, Monsters, was written and read by Tor Solar Fred Valenza. Probably True Solar Stories is a production of Unthink Solar, PR, and Communications. Be bold for solar. Stand out and educate. See you next time. La, 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 la.